Welcome to Ounce of Prevention, a podcast about current trends in Connecticut law and what they might have to do with you. In each episode, we'll focus on a specific legal issue and how it can impact your everyday life. The goal of the podcast is to educate and inspire our listeners to harness the law to make life just a little bit easier. I'm your host, Tim Herring. I'm an attorney at the firm of Chipman Mizuko Emerson LLC with offices in Danbury and Southbury, Connecticut. Welcome to Ounce of Prevention. This is Tim Herring. I'm here with Elizabeth Hartery. Welcome back. You can call back. me Liz, Tim. Okay. <laughs> I might call you Elizabeth just to keep you on your toes once in oh, a while, or another name. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, also known as Liz, is an attorney in our Trust and Estates practice group. So, Liz, why don't you tell the listeners what you do every day? Every day? Every well. single day of your life. <laughs> Well, as you said, I'm an associate in the Trust in the States Department. You are? Yeah. Okay. Did you? Did I, you not know that's that? coming back to me. Okay. I've been here since 2017, so it's been about two and a half years for me. So I mostly do estate planning for people, advanced planning for whatever they need to do for wills, incapacity documents, revocable trusts, all of that. And then I also do things on the other end where I do probate administration, trust administration and all the tax returns and everything that go with that. I kind of get people on both ends of that process. Gotcha. I only need a will if I'm rich, right? Yes. I no. mean, my name is rich. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Well, first of all, wills are not the only thing I do, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously, but I'll tell you that's not the only thing I do. When you come in for an estate plan, a will's part of it, and I can talk about all the things you can do with a will that you can't do without one. But there's also pieces of it that just help deal with managing your assets or your healthcare decisions while you're still alive. So no matter who you are, if you have a lot of debt or you don't even own your house or you don't have any kids, why do you, you know, maybe you think you don't need one for that. But the other documents that we do are things like the healthcare instructions and a living will. No matter how old you are, things can happen and you need to be able to name somebody who's going to make those decisions for you if you can't. It could be things like you you typically think of the end of life decisions, you know, like when you're going to pull the plug for lack of a better phrase, but it can also apply to things like you're in for surgery, who's going to decide if A or B is okay or not when you're under anesthesia, you know, when you can't you can't make your own decisions. That's kind of an important one. Yeah, right. Because who, I mean, if you don't have a document in place or you haven't already picked somebody, is your family going to fight over who it is? Can anybody make the decisions for you? It's, there's a lot of They'll fight over who gets to pull the plug. <laughs> well, maybe your family, too. <laughs> no, they're good. They're yeah. probably listening. All good people. Right. But without, I mean, the, a similar thing with your finances, right? I mean, maybe you don't have, maybe you're not rich or named rich, maybe. But still, if you can't handle... If you're out of the country or something and something happens with your bank account, is there somebody that you want to be able to take care of that so that you don't have to deal with things from Brazil or wherever you are? Right. A lot of people might think, okay, estate planning, that's a will. But what you're saying is it's actually kind of a suite of documents, right? Right, exactly. And then getting to the, the will part, why do I need a will if I don't have any money or if I don't have $12 billion or or however many dollars you are thinking of having in the future. That's a good number. Yeah, okay, $12 billion. You have kids, right, Tim? I you do. Have, you have, And they're not 18 yet, right? Let me check. No. <laughs> okay. No. So if you have minor children, even if you're married, who's going to take care of the kids if you and your wife 
die in a plane crash or something happens to you that's a terrible tragedy, but who in your family is going to take your kids in? And will your family fight over it if you guys don't pick somebody ahead of time? Right. Probably yes is the answer when <laughs> no matter what family you're in. <laughs> so that's one of those things. We that have has, a rich uncle worth, <laughs> worth $12 billion. No, we don't. Well, that's the guy you, you give the power to, though, so of nobody course. else unseats him. Right. So. Absolutely. Right. So there's things like that that are totally unrelated to having money or not that you want to make sure that, that they're taken care of. But even with your, you know, say you own a home, even if there's a mortgage on it, somebody's going to have to take care of the house if that's where the kids are still living, right? You want to try to figure out who gets your, your stuff when you pass away regardless. Makes sense. In broad terms, what's the difference between a will and a trust? Well, there's a lot of different types of trusts, but I think the one that most people want to know about is the difference between a will and a revocable trust, or some people call it a living trust, so it's, it's the same thing. A will is the basic document that you think of, but it only takes effect when you die. Nothing can happen with a will until you pass away, and then it says, you know, who's in charge of, of taking care of your estate, who's your executor, who's the guardian of your children if you have any minors, who gets your stuff, are there any trusts, continuing trusts for people to manage the money or the assets that you have. A revocable trust can do a lot of other things that a will can't, but it can also do pretty much everything a will can. So people call it a will substitute. One of the things it can do is help manage for your incapacity during life. So similar to like what the power of attorney would do when you name a person to take care of your finances. If you have a revocable trust and you retitle assets into that trust, then it's a lot more seamless if if you name a co-trustee or a backup trustee. Say you become, let's say you're 80 years old, or you, you look 80, right? So I'm just <laughs> By the end of the day. Some days. <laughs> But, okay, let's say you're thinking, okay, maybe I need some help or I I might in the near future. Or you never really know any age, right? You could become incapacitated because you get in a car accident or or you never know what's going to happen, right? right? right. So if you name, there's two spouses, usually they can name each other as co-trustees of a revocable trust. And that means that either spouse can take care of whatever assets are in that trust. So if you become incapable, if you start losing it, or if you just physically can't handle things, or you're, you're out of the country, or whatever it is temporarily, your wife already has access to all of the assets there. So she can help manage uh, and take care of the assets even if you can't. Where if you don't have that document in place, she's relying on your power of attorney, probably, which Banks and financial institutions are supposed to accept them if they're in the right form, but sometimes there's more paperwork or more hassle, more delay, that kind of thing. It can be a little more cumbersome. Right, exactly. And when you pass away, if things are already in a revocable trust, even if it's just bank accounts or investments, somebody has to pay for your funeral and sort of those immediate expenses that come up. If somebody's already a trustee of your trust and there's already money in there, they don't have to wait until, you know, a probate court appoint somebody executor, which lately can take four to six weeks, maybe. It, it kind of leaves your family with with a burden, depending on if they can cover those expenses or not, until they get to the probate court. That's a good point, because I know that there have been situations that, that we've dealt with as a firm where a person dies, they don't have a trust, so it's a, it's a will, but the person named in the will as executor has not been appointed yet. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of no man's land right 
So that that can be a problem, especially when there's time sensitive decisions, right? right? Investment decisions, or there could be a, a company that was owned by the decedent, and who's in charge? Right, you're right. No man's land is a really good way to put it. Just because. Thank you. You're, <laughs> you're welcome that. to. You can come work on our side of the office if you want. You can be a consultant. My rates are high. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you if you only have a will, right? Everything was in your own name before. Let's say, if you can't handle things anymore, which I imagine you can't, if you're if you're not dead, there chances anymore, are right. Can't run the company. But nobody else has been appointed to manage your your LLC, your business, or your bank accounts, or take over making those kind of decisions, paying bills and things. So you're kind of in a limbo until the court can appoint somebody executor. And it used to be, I think, probably a more streamlined process. But like I said, it depends on the court. It depends on the workload. But it can take weeks, not days. So that's one of the other advantages of revocable trusts. Did that answer the question? It did. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, sometimes a person who comes to us for estate planning well, this happens a lot. There, there are some interesting family dynamics that mm-hmm. we may come across, right? And it may be that there's a there's an adult child who the parents might view as being a potential problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've had substance abuse issues, maybe gambling, maybe they're a spendthrift. Is there anything a parent can do in that situation to dissuade that potential problem person from gumming up the estate administration process? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that can be done? Well, I mean, there's two questions there, I guess. Is one of them is, or a question for you, I guess, to clarify, is do they, do they still want to give something to whatever this problem child is to take care of them, but they just don't trust them to use the money right? Or are they cutting this kid out altogether? Well, I guess that's a good point. I guess it, both scenarios might come up, or maybe they want to give, they've helped that child already. So they want to acknowledge and give that child less. So Mm -hmm. they're not going to inherit an equal amount to their siblings because they've already gotten a a loan that they never paid back, for example. Gotcha. And we do see those kinds of situations. Some people need more help than others. Right. Or some people, you know, there's a much older sibling who's already gotten taken care of with college and marriages and weddings and everything else, you know. So it's just wanting to even it up. If the issue is that you're worried about the child in this case – creating a ruckus, I guess, and holding up the process of probate, one of the things you can do is what's called a no contest clause in your will or your revocable trust or both. That's basically a clause that says if anybody challenges my will or my trust, you know, in a probate proceeding or otherwise, that child or that person forfeits whatever they would have gotten otherwise under the document. Now, that only really works if they were going to get something under the document because otherwise what do they have to lose if they were already getting nothing right so that doesn't really work if they don't get anything what some people do in that situation is to to give them something or like you said maybe they're just getting less than their siblings or maybe they're getting a lot less you have to know who this kid is and what's going to be valuable to them but maybe ten thousand dollars or something is a lot to them but it's way less than everybody else is getting Mm -hmm. but it's just enough to to make them think twice about causing a problem in the in the probate process with regard to your other question like what if you do want to give them money but you're worried about them mishandling money or maybe you're worried about creditors like if they have big gambling debts or something and you want to make sure that your money's used for rent and food and you know not to go to these creditors right right so you can set up 
uh, instead of giving money to them outright, so instead of just writing them a check for cash and putting it in their name, you can set up a continuing trust for them where basically the money goes into a trust. You pick who's going to be the trustee, who's going to help manage that money and be in charge of making distributions to this child. You can, you can make it really broad so that maybe the trustee has total discretion to make distributions or not whenever they want to. Or maybe it's sort of for a narrow purpose, right? So maybe it's for only for healthcare or education or sort of the typical things that you think they might need help with. As long as the child doesn't have control over those funds, it can be protected to a certain extent from things like creditors or or divorce. This kind of thing happens if you're if you're worried about a child's rocky marriage maybe or you don't trust your in-laws and you want to make sure that they can still be taken care of with your money, you're fine with them being used for food, rent, paying for a wedding, buying a house, that kind of thing. But you want to make sure this whoever these third parties are don't take advantage of it. That's one option. So it's a way to wall it off. Right. Okay. Right. Because basically it's not their, It's not theirs because they can't right. just write themselves checks, right? Or, right? or they don't just already have it in their account. But there's a lot of different ways to do it and different permutations that depend on the situation. But it's one option. Gotcha. And we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but what's the difference between a living will and a will? Okay. So a living will is basically... I'm, it's about four pages long, but I'm just cutting it down to the gist of it. The gist of it is basically if I'm incapacitated, if I'm incapable of making healthcare decisions for myself, and if I'm terminally ill or permanently unconscious, like say I'm in a coma and I have been for a month and there's no, no good prognosis that comes out of this, I don't want to be kept alive by machines or feeding tubes, that kind of thing. That's usually the default that what most people go with, but a living will can say, the total opposite of that. Some people are saying, keep me alive no matter what, do whatever you have to do. I don't care. You know, it can be sort of the other extreme. And then there's people in between that say, okay, maybe they have, I don't know, like religious objections to certain things, but not to other things. So you can kind of customize it depending on what your situation is. So that's only related really to end of life healthcare decisions. A will is the document that, that says what to do with your stuff and, you know, who's going to take care of everything when you when you die. Right. So it's just a totally different situation. Gotcha. I use stuff as a technical term throughout this podcast. So it that's is, a legal technical term. I and mean, that's in the statute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for that's, sure. That's a oft used word. <laughs> Let's say to uh, a married couple, they own real property in Connecticut and they hold it jointly with right of survivorship. Mm-hmm. A lot of people listening to this probably think that if one spouse dies, the title automatically vests in their surviving spouse and that's it there's really no need to get the probate court involved what would you say to that Liz (laughs) well you set me up well to say that's a bad idea Tim I let you spike it (laughs) thanks I appreciate it so the thing is in in Connecticut at least which is what we're talking about there are two liens that are automatically attached to property when somebody passes away, even if it's joint with rights of survivorship. One is probate fee lien. So there's a statutory probate fee in Connecticut that's based on the size of your estate that attaches. And then there's also an estate tax lien, where in Connecticut, with the exemptions the way they are, not nearly as many people are subject to that, but they attach anyway, and you need paperwork on the land records that say, okay, these are all taken care of and the title's free and clear. Let's say the first spouse passes away, everything's held jointly. There's nothing in this person's sole name, which is usually when people think, okay, great, I don't have to go to probate. 
but then when the second spouse passes away or or if the second spouse is still alive and goes to sell this real property the title company is going to have a problem because those liens haven't been cleared off so it's not clean title to go ahead and sell it or transfer it to somebody else so unfortunately you still need to do something when the first spouse passes away the good news is is if there's no sole property if there's an, if it's all joint all they have to do is file a will if there is one with the probate court and file an estate tax return whether or not it's taxable just because that's what the probate fee is based on and once you file those two things if if that's all there is and nothing else has to go through probate the court will issue a document that gets recorded on the land records and then everything's all set for whatever happens with the the second spouse titles all set there right i've heard about pet trusts have you i have (laughs) can you can you tell our listeners what a pet trust is sure well i figured i would tell i can tell your listeners the various ways to take care of pets a lot of people have pets right? sure i have two cats let's let's not just limit this to the estate planning aspect Let's talk about my cats for let's the talk next about half let's, an let's, hour. Uh, that's another podcast. So. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of times pets are family members, right, to a lot of people. And you want to make sure that they're taken care of when, when you pass away. Probably when you and your spouse pass away, right? Whoever it is that's taking care of them. A pet trust is something that you can set up that's sort of a, a separate trust for the benefit of that pet. But where you appoint the people who are going to take care of the pet, who's going to manage the money, you're presumably going to give some money to that pet trust to take care of your pet because having pets is expensive no matter which which type of pet you have and how old it is but in connecticut pet trusts well probably in a lot of states but in connecticut there's a specific statute about pet trusts where there's a a trustee which is what you would have for for most trusts there's somebody who's taking care of the property does the trustee have to be a human being yes it can't be another pet no okay as far as I know, although I don't... You may want to take a look I, at the statute. I will, I will take a look at that, just in case. Just double check that. So there's a trustee who's taking care of the funds. There's what's called a custodian, which is the one that's taking care of the pets. It could be the same person if you want it to be. But because normally when you have a trust, when you have a human beneficiary, whether it's a minor or not, there's a, a human who can object if something's going wrong, right? If the trustee's embezzling funds or not doing something correctly according to the terms of the trust, the beneficiaries are usually the ones who go to the court and say, listen, can you take a look at this? Obviously, Fido cannot object. Yeah, unless you have a very impressive pet, your pet probably cannot object. Like a dolphin, perhaps. Oh, yeah, or a parrot, maybe, something like that might be okay, but... Gonna make some law here. (laughs) But, so, so there's a third person that's involved that's called a trust protector which is a third party that can't be the same person as the trustee and the custodian. And their sole job basically is to just make sure everything's kosher, that everything's going according to plan. Nobody's abusing the pets or abusing the money, you know, taking the money out or anything like that and just making sure everything's going according to plan. That's a pet trust. That's if you, we've had them before where, so you own a horse that's, they can live for a while and they're very expensive. It's probably not something where you can just, give it to your friend and say, here, have a horse, please take care of it for me right. for the next 35 years or something, right? That's when a pet trust would probably be a good idea. You'd have to figure out how much money you think, roughly, maybe they're going to need to take care of the horse or whatever other pets you have. In your will or your your revocable trust, you'd say, okay, I give $200,000 to the pet trust for the benefit of Fido or whoever it is. I also give my pet to that trust. and then And then the pet trust would basically give the terms of 
what the money can be used for, you know, what the, if there's any particular instructions, that kind of thing. And then I imagine in that trust document, there would be provisions for what happens to money left over when the pet dies. Right. Yeah. would be beneficiaries of that right. trust. Right. Okay. So usually, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who was thinking maybe it makes sense to have an animal charity to be the remainder beneficiary, you know, or it could just be, okay, well, my kids get the money after my pet dies, or it could be whoever, you know, it could match whoever else is in your will, but, but there are provisions so the trust isn't just stuck there when your pets pass away. Gotcha. One last question. This kind of goes along with what I asked you before about a clause that would disinherit Mm -hmm. someone if they really challenged a will when they had no right to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. But is there, in naming an executor and preparing a will, is there any way that a person can can kind of insulate an executor from personal liability? There are certain protections already where where they're not personally responsible for those Just things in the background to a certain law? degree. Yeah. Okay. Usually there's something probably in the document anyway, but there's just in the background law kind of what, same thing for trustees, any kind of fiduciary. They have, I mean, they obviously have standards that they have to uphold, like a duty of impartiality. Like you can't treat one beneficiary better than the other unless that's what the document says, right? Or you have to make sound investment decisions for the money. You can't just speculate on really risky stocks, right? So there's certain rules like that that I won't go into all of them right now, <laughs> but there's certain rules like that where the, you really need to follow it. But assuming the fiduciary is, which if I haven't defined fiduciary, that's I'm talking about the executor or the trustee, the power of attorney, those kinds of people who are, are in charge of carrying out your wishes. As long as the fiduciary is following what they're supposed to be doing, they're, they're probably limiting their risk. But it's also a good idea anytime you're in that kind of position, even if you don't have like an ongoing attorney. We talked last podcast about it's good to get an attorney early just to make sure mm-hmm. that you have everything set up right, to make sure you know what you're doing, to make sure you know what not to do. So that's one of the things that can really help with the ounce of prevention, you know, with our, with our podcast. Right. Let's uh, bring it back. Yeah. Yep. Let's bring it back to the table. You're welcome. That's one of those things that can really help just, just set yourself up for success. I mean, to an extent, like we, even with the no contest clause, you can't really stop anyone from making, from fighting if they're, if they want to fight. I mean, I'm sure in your line of work, not everyone is going to be completely reasonable and rational, no matter what the situation that is. That is true. Yes. There's only so much you can do. You can't absolutely bar someone from going to court, because, I mean, people have certain rights that you can't just get rid of. But even if somebody wants to go to court, if they don't have a good case, they're going to get tossed out. There's not a... You can't totally avoid the hassle, but as long as everybody's doing basically what they're supposed to be doing, there's there shouldn't be liability at the end. Right. And through careful drafting, you can make those claims less likely. Right. And make it harder to bring them. Right. Um, But like you said, you can't keep people out of court. Mm -hmm. Just can't do it. Right. They want to create a problem or if they have a grudge against whoever it is. I mean, one thing you might, we always try to help people consider is, is what those family dynamics are. And is it a good idea to appoint this son as executor if the other son hates that son? Or who knows what the family dynamics are? Or just all the kids fight anyway. Or you're, you don't want to point two kids as co-executors if they can't agree on what to get for lunch, right? Well, I'm so, glad you brought that yeah. up because I was actually going to ask you. So anecdotally, I've heard horror stories about co-executorships mm-hmm. where it's it's counterintuitive. The, the, the person who got the will done might think that it's a way 
to make sure there's buy-in or there's harmony, but in reality, it can actually be the complete opposite. Right. Right. You really need to know, and and that's something I I don't know. I haven't lived with, grown up with your kids for however long. So that's something that you really have to know. And really, it can be a hard question for some people, right? You don't, especially if you sort of have the rose-colored glasses, right? You're just, oh, it's going to be fine. But that's one of those things where you just really want to think it through ahead of time and and consider what could go wrong and try to prevent it. So maybe the solution, if none of your kids are going to be great at it or they're all going to fight. Maybe you want to get like a third party to do it. Maybe you want to get like an aunt or an uncle or uh, an attorney or an accountant or, you know, something like that. And just somebody who's totally above the fray and isn't getting anything under the will can be totally impartial. Sometimes that kind of thing can, can help a lot. And just to that point, sometimes people kind of have a default of, okay, I have three kids I'll just name the oldest, the middle one, the youngest, in that order for everything. Because that's kind of how you think, right? But if... That's very Games of Thrones. Right. Yeah, the primogenitor or something, right? right? But sometimes the oldest kid maybe is terrible with money or or just has no idea what's happening or is a little flaky and isn't going to deal with all these deadlines. So one of the things you have to think of is which... Make sure the people you're picking are good people to to carry out this role. Sometimes people for like the power of attorney, which is financial, and the healthcare instructions, which is the healthcare side, sometimes that's totally different people. Like maybe your daughter's a nurse and you she knows exactly what you would want if something happened. She already knows what the heck the doctors are talking about. Maybe she's number one for the healthcare representative to make your decisions. But again, like maybe your son's a an accountant or a financial advisor or something, and he would be perfect at doing the, the money side of things, right? right? So you just really have to think about who you're picking and what their skills are and if it's going to suit. It just avoids a lot of hassle in the future if you pick pick the right people for these positions. Sounds like an ounce of prevention issue. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've seen is that, at least in some instances, people give less thought to their backup selections mm. than their primary selections. And it's like what you said. Oh, I'm yeah. just going to go. I'll go with the responsible child, and they're going to outlive me anyway. And then I'll just have their, the the other kids. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the other kids have no business in a fiduciary position. And it turns out that maybe you know there was a tragedy with the, with the responsible child. They they got a disease and died. So now you're, it, right. It, a lot of care should go into the backup. Right. You know the successor selections as well. Right. Right. And one of our jobs in general as attorneys, but one of my jobs as an estate planning attorney, we tend to think about eight steps past what most people want or uh, need only, to only think to. All right, 12 okay. sometimes. Is that better? Let's go with the baker's dozen. <laughs> 13 steps past. Just because part of our job is, okay, but what happens next? Okay, but what if this? Okay, but what if there's a clause in there called a, I call it an ultimate catastrophe clause. Some people call it a family disaster clause. What if your entire family is wiped out? Where does everything go? And most people don't. It's dark, Liz. I, I know. My job is not always light and, and rainbows. It's not? No, but but it's something that we, it in all likelihood, I mean, especially if you have five kids, grandkids, in all likelihood, you're never going to need to use it. But what if that does happen? It could be just chaos, right? If you just have nieces and great nephews and, I, you know, it could get really complicated, so... So part of our job, even though it seems like overkill sometimes, is just to make sure sort of all contingencies are planned for. Right. And not to go to family reunions. Right. That right. too. That's yeah. easy way around it. Yeah. I, I like to be practical. Yeah. 
If anyone has anyone seen uh, King Ralph, anybody? No, the very beginning of that movie, whole royal family gets like electrocuted with taking a family photo. So can I make a suggestion? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm not in the T and E department, but I think you should rename that provision in a will the King the Ralph, King Ralph provision. provision. I right? like it. We might you have some trademark issues. You should be a consultant, issues. Tim. Well, thank you. I'll send you a bill. <laughs> we'll have to get some naming mm-hmm. rights on that. Yeah. But. So I just, a lot of these things will never come up. Maybe you don't need five backup executors. But if you have people that you would totally trust to put in that position, why not have more backups than you'll probably ever need just right. to make sure it's covered? Right. Makes sense. All right. Well, we've exhausted my list of questions have for we? this time. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to mention? One of the things I probably should mention, and I could probably talk for way too long, but one thing that's really important to consider is things like beneficiary designations to make sure that they match all of your other documents. Right. Especially if you make big changes or there's big life changes, like you have grandkids or if, God forbid, somebody passes away, just to make sure that those kinds of things are updated too because sometimes those are sort of the back of your mind. You got a life insurance policy 30 years ago and you – set your beneficiary designations, the end. You just never think about it ever again. But people sometimes are really surprised when we ask them who those beneficiaries are now, or you know, the will they drafted 30 years ago, who did they name as their executor. Some people are really surprised to go back and look at that and say, oh no. They named Prince, the the artist formerly known. Is that what your will says? I'm not gonna talk about that. (laughs) That's private. Yeah, but some things like that, like my Hopefully my parents don't kill me for this, but I use them example we'll in a seminar. Out. Yeah, well, you edit that out. Um, I mean, we they... won't. Do not edit that out. <laughs> this will stay in. <laughs> I'll I'll just give them advance warning. Yeah. I they're, no, they're just a, sort of a typical example, right? Like if you haven't the last time they did their documents before I finally convinced them having having this job that they should really revisit them. The last time they did their will and their healthcare and their you know power of attorney and stuff was before my youngest brother was born. So they didn't even name all of their children in their documents, right? And I wasn't old enough, you know, I didn't have this job. I was I was like five. So, you know, I couldn't be named as an executive. That's old enough to have talked to them about it. <laughs> but so, you know, when I went back to visit those things, their will didn't really change that much because it was just, okay, the same family basically, right? But it was pretty simple. But things like the healthcare representative and the power of attorney that you name, if you named somebody 30 years ago that was a really close friend that you haven't spoken to in 10 years or a sibling you've had a falling out with or who's passed away since then and can't do it, like a lot of those things are just need to be updated. Sometimes people don't think about it because they figure, okay, finally I did these documents or I put these beneficiary designations together. I'm all set. I don't ever have to look at them again. But Yeah, that that's a, a good point. I, From what I've heard and I, I think – maybe you or another attorney here has said at least every five years mm-hmm. take a good look at your documents yeah. but it might even be more more often than that right you know because like you said i mean it could have disastrous consequences right. i mean if if your best friend through age 40 who you selected as your health care representative at 45 ends up going to prison for white collar health care fraud and then they're standing over you um, right. And that's not a good, right. uh, not not a good, a good look. look. Not right. a good look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, we uh, we used to say every five years. I think now considering the tax 
law changes and... 10 minutes, every 10 minutes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And who knows which party is in power at any given time. Who knows what happens in 2020, which is this year, and that's crazy. But mm-hmm. things like that, where maybe every three to five years is better. Mm-hmm. Or like you said earlier, if something major changes, if you, if you have grandkids now, or if you get divorced, or you some of the people named as your fiduciaries aren't around anymore, you don't trust them anymore. Those kind of major sort of life changes are the kinds of things that you should be considering and just kind of keep in the back of your mind that that's one of the things on the list to to update gotcha all right well i think that'll do it so thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next ounce of prevention thanks for listening to the ounce of prevention podcast if you'd like to learn more about today's topic please visit our website at www.danburylaw.com or call us directly at 203-744-1929. So you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. This podcast is not legal advice and is for informational and educational purposes only.